0: Since we were last together, the first presidential debate happened, the president contracted COVID-19, and the New York Times released that salacious story about the president's tax records. We will talk deeper, better, and smarter about all those on this week's Cory Act Show. How did this you and me. I just mess up my own tagline for the show because the tagline is smarter, deeper, better talk. I think I just said deeper, smarter, wait, bar, but I, I messed it up back there in the opening and it's because I'm not a professional and I hope you'll just show me some grace for not even getting my own tagline correct. Thank you for listening to the Corey Act show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I am grateful when you do. I like to take some pride in that most of the time my show is not led around by the nose, by the news cycle. So whatever Fox, CNN, NBR, MSNBC, whatever they're all talking about, I take a lot of pride in not talking about that stuff and just talking about other things. But we are in a unique part of the the news cycle. It only happens every four years. So, yeah. Let's do this. Let's go ahead and just fall right into the news cycle, but let's do it from a distinct perspective, and that's what I hope to provide you. One other quick note, I am also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church, and Beachwood meets in Greenville, South Carolina on Sunday mornings at 1030, and you're invited. I hope you will join us as we now continue our series in the revelation of Jesus Christ. It has been awesome, and so uh, I highly recommend that you come on out as we are starting into the rhythms of the autumn, rhythms, the rhythms of fall. We'd love to see you there. So there's COVID, there is the taxes, and there's the debate. Those were the, the three big things. And by the way, all of that came just like a, a day after the Supreme Court announcement became uh, became official, because it went Amy Coney Barrett next day or two days later, New York Times on the, uh, the taxes, and then debate that night, and then that next weekend, I guess that was on Friday, Thursday or Friday... Uh, Trump was diagnosed with COVID nineteen. So it, it happened like within seven days, actually within six days. Within six days, all of those things happened, and that is twenty twenty for you. So uh, here's where I want to start. Actually, I want to start with the taxes because this this is the stuff I wish we did dis- we discussed more. I don't like that politics has crossed over so much into culture. That the culture war is now in the political world where I do want politics to be primarily policy. I want to talk about taxes and spending, foreign policy, regulation, uh, education. I wish we talked about that more because that's a a uh, policy-driven realm. But we tend not to do that. Politics ends up... or uh, Healthcare. I wish we talked about healthcare policy more. These are things I wish we did. uh, Interest rates, all that. But we end up in culture wars. We end up in wars about kneeling for the national anthem, and that ends up being a political thing. It ends up being about uh, so, other social movements, like Antifa or BLM or something. And what I want to do is policy. And so taxes, taxes are policy, and that's fun. Remember when we used to talk about taxes and policy? Like, get this. Do you remember in the 2000 campaign when there was a real substantive debate about social security? And Al Gore got to talk about his lockbox. That was fun. That was back when everyone acted like a little bit more like adults and we got to talk about important things. So, taxes. The story from the New York Times was thus. That Donald Trump had not paid much in federal income taxes, federal income taxes, in a long while. It appears in the last couple years he's only paid $750 in federal income taxes. He's, of course, paid some other taxes because we have various and sundry i mean all kinds of taxes we have i'm sure he, i'm sure he did pay some uh the word the word i'm looking for is capital gains i think that's one of the taxes I, I i dislike a great deal taxes on on investment because investment is a thing you want more of and taxes are things you do when you want to get people to stop doing it and that's why we raise taxes on cigarettes we raise taxes on alcohol because we want people to do those things less and so that should tell you something that when we tax investment, we are going to get less investment. When you tax income, you reduce the incentive to go make income because it's going to be taxed, right? So taxes are just a tool, and it, they're not used well. But anyway, the, uh, the president of the United States has paid some other taxes, but his federal income tax has not been, a, has not been, has not been much. And uh, I think with some real fairness, that should upset some people. You should be upset that a system exists wherein a very, very wealthy person can pay that little in income tax. Because I know this, I paid a lot more. Actually, I have a regular listener, Wayne, who I'm grateful for listening regularly. Hi, Wayne. He, I said months ago, I guess, I estimated how much I paid in taxes on a year. And because he's got the brain for it, he figured all that out and, and and sent me an email that said, yeah, if you paid that much, it means you earned this much. And I don't think you earned that much. And I didn't. I don't remember all the details, but I, I definitely got that wrong then. But I know this. I paid substantially more than $750, right? And so when I heard it, I was like, man, I don't like that at all. I don't like that a system exists that someone can have that much and I can pay so much and that person can pay so little. I don't like that system one bit. But that... It's a different discussion. There was a, a an element here to the story that it was supposed to be that Donald Trump had done something nefarious, done something immoral or illegal. Now let's, let's be clear. So there are things that are legal, they're okay to do legally, but they're not moral, and so you shouldn't do them anyway. And just because something is... Uh, so, uh, no, I've already said that. I have said it the way I wanted to say it. Yeah. So there are things that are you're able to do, but they're not moral. So the implication is that Donald Trump did something either illegal or immoral. Well, he didn't do anything illegal. I want to make make that clear for especially for those of you who are, who are Trump fans. I think it's it's important to say. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't do anything illegal. Didn't break any rules. He has lawyers and accountants who s- saw the system the tax system, the convoluted the tens of thousands of pages tax system and found ways to minimize the, the president's exposure to taxation. And I suspect that's been the case for 50 years of his life since he's been doing things and being taxed. Now, So the question then is, all right, well, it's legal, but is that okay? Is that moral? Is that good to mitigate your tax exposure? Well, I'm going to make an argument here, not about the president. So everyone stopped thinking about him. He breaks everyone's brain anyway. Everyone gets their, all their morality and objectivity torn up over this guy for some reason. But, so did now just talk about taxes. Is it moral to minimize the amount of taxes you owe to the federal government? And my answer to that is absolutely. Who is, let's talk about this in biblical terms... Talk about it in terms of stewardship and the stewardship of resources. The Lord is good to give us resources. Now, the federal government has no resources. Hear me say that. The federal government has no resources. It only derives resources from the people. It does have the power to sell bonds and therefore get money from other governments or it can't be giant banks giant banks and other countries can buy our bonds and then we we pay those back. Usually those are five-year, ten-year T-notes and we pay those back. So they can, the federal government can, get its own money but even the way it does that is it's saying to the lender, the person buying the bond, well, the American economy and taxpayer will be able to pay this back. So the federal government has no real way to get its own resources. The resources belong to us. So, Are you, whoever you are, are you a better manager of your resources than the federal government? Because we have been given resources graciously. God has been so good to give us what we have, however little or however much it is. What we do know about our federal government, it it is profligate. It is wasteful. I know this, every dollar that I have and spend the way I want to spend it is better than how they will spend it. If I got to keep more of what I earn and what is mine, it'll it'll not just be better for me. It'll be better for those around me because if I go spend it, I enhance the economy. If I save it, then that's going to help me either spend on something, a bigger item later or be able to take care of myself in old age. Um, Or if I save it and put it in a bank, that bank then uses it to invest because that's part of what banks can do. They can take your savings and invest it in other stuff. There's... All kinds of ways me keeping my money, you keeping your money, is a better use of the resource than paying the federal taxes. So I want to say with some clarity here, and if there is disagreement, you can write to the show, Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com, or over, over on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I want to say this clearly. You should pay as little as legal, le- legally possible. Don't break the law. Whatever the law is, even if they start raising that those rates to just uh, to, to really uh, crushing ways, pay your taxes. But whatever way you've been given to give less to a wasteful and profligate system, give less to the wasteful and profligate system. It is good for us to keep our money for ourselves and then to be generous with it both to churches, organizations, charities, any any family you know that needs help and you've got the ability to help, do that. So that's number one. Number one, the resident didn't do anything illegal, but just as a matter of morality for all of us, reduce your, I'm telling just reduce it. Reduce your uh, mitigation. Excuse me, not mitigation. Your The word I'm looking for is exposure. Reduce your exposure to being taxed by the federal government. Number two. It should make us all angry this way, not necessarily angry at the president of the United States, but angry that a system like that exists. This this labyrinth of a system of taxes that we have built since the institution of the income tax in nineteen nineteen, 19 uh, no that's that's not right in nineteen a little bit later I think in the twenties when we introduced the income tax and then we want to start creating all kinds of other taxes and then we. Uh, create loopholes for things. I mean, I I think about like what we do for real estate developers because that became a big focus of the tax stuff, of the Trump's tax stuff because he's a real estate developer. We want to develop real estate. We want land to be developed into places where commerce can take place or people can dwell. And so on those investments, there's different tax instruments you can use and there's apparently some straight up write-offs if you, when you lose on, when you lose money on a project. One of the ones that I, um, that, I that surprised me, I, I didn't know. There is, uh, in, in, in businesses, when you have a business investment for like a machine, you get something in the manufacturing world, you can, t- t- you, you have this big big ticket item that you may, maybe spent seven figures on. As it depreciates, you have less tax liability or tax exposure to pay for the value of that thing because you bought this machine, but it got less valuable over time because it's not working as well and it depreciated in value. But on on some real estate from what I understood, I don't understand all of it, it works differently with real estate. Like it was a, a building that someone would have bought, a rich person would have bought, and it might it might depreciate over time if the if the area gets worse, but but that investment that is a building versus the investment that is a uh, an instrument like a a machine gets gets treated differently. And so we have cre- created this labyrinth of a system, and that's what we should be upset at. that it there there are ways to manipulate it. And then for those that are more like class warriors and you get upset that there are that the rich have advantages over folks who aren't as wealthy, this this really is their advantage. Their advantage is their ability to keep more of their money because they can hire attorneys and accountants to come up with creative ways for them to keep more of their money. So that's, that's the part that we should be upset about. So here's a couple other ideas I have on taxes. And we'll take our first break. It reminded me again that how much I'm in favor of a flat tax. Like, let's just, let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of this, this horrific system. that's unbelievably complicated, impossible to totally understand. And just, if, if it's income, then fine. Let's just tax income at 10%. At whatever it has to be. I, I and I say everybody. E- everybody's in for 10%. Knowing that there's, it's over 50% of the country doesn't pay federal income taxes. Then I also know those people are paying, is that called payroll taxes? Yeah, payroll taxes. So I, I I have no math. I've done no math on this yet. Just talking about trying to simplify the system, the flat tax is something I have long wanted uh, to do. And let's just pick a percentage, whatever it has to be, between 10 and 15% and go. Next, it also reminded me one of my tax, one of my most important tax reforms I want. And that is to end the withholdings system. The withholding system is bad for at least two reasons. One, It hides taxation. Now, especially with direct deposit and people not actually getting a pay stub anymore, where you look down and see how much of your money went to various governments, you just take whatever flies into your bank account at the end of the month or at the end of whatever pay period you have, and you just see that money, and you don't see everything that was taken. So it makes people forget about taxation. And then some folks, because of the way our tax system works, at the... End of a tax year, they file taxes and find out they're getting, some people, giant tax returns. Usually it's a little couple hundred bucks from me from the feds. And they feel really good. Look at all this money I'm getting back. But they never saw what they lost. And so it hides taxation. If we would stop doing that, we don't have a withholding system. And everybody had to pay monthly. Let's make it monthly, not once a year payments. You've got to write your tax check. you got to go online and get your debit card out and submit to the government what you owe them. We could, we could change this culture probably overnight as people started having to actively be involved in their own taxation. Can you imagine, like someone who makes someone who makes 50 grand a year I suspect I shouldn't guess, because there's all kinds of different factors here. But let's say that person had to go online once a month and pay a, pay a grand, pay a grand in taxes to the federal government. You think they would start taking taxes more seriously? You think they would demand more accountability from the government how they spend all this money? If you actually had to put into your monthly budget sitting down and 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 either writing a check or going online to, line to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars a, a month to the federal government, we should get rid of the withholding system because it at least is bad for that one reason. It hides the taxation and people should be very aware of how much they're being taxed. Number two, is it's a, a, a system that's not... I don't like people call it theft. I don't like when libertarians call it theft. But it is a theft of at least one part of my financial freedom. For example, let's say we had a system where you did have to pay yearly. So you, you keep all your money. Whatever you earn, you earn all of it. But you know there's a, tax, there's a tax bill coming. And so you better be saving some money to pay up. Well, if that were the system, and we'll use round numbers here. And I know I got to pay ten grand at the end of the year. Well, over the months... I'm going to take that money and not just put it in a savings account. I'm probably going to invest it in Amazon or Microsoft or Apple. And so I got to take that money that I'm eventually going to give to the federal government. I got to use it to make money for myself. Or I could put it in a savings account. Back when savings accounts had any kind of interest, and now savings accounts have almost no interest, so you have no reason to save. I could at least put it there because I know I'm going to pay it. I'm going to pay it to the federal government. But at least let me have it so I can put put it in the bank or put it in the market over the month. And I can earn money on my money. I can use my money to earn money before I have to give some back to the federal government. So what the federal government gets to do is take my money, no interest, interest interest-free. I don't even get to use it as an instrument to build wealth for myself as I wait to give it to them. That's a backward system. If we did did that, if we got rid of the uh, withholdings, it would illuminate the people. And it would help us start to build a better culture of personal responsibility, which is one of the fundamental bedrocks of American culture and also a biblical value, personal responsibility. We are way over on this. So when we come back, I want to talk about the debate. And we'll, I think, probably have some COVID-19 thoughts. Everything is happening around the administration and COVID-19. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of The Cory Truax Show. not surprising to you that i did not stay up at all to watch the trump biden debate like not a single second of it because i didn't care and usually debates don't matter they don't change anything that's typically the case uh, and so I, I didn't stay up to watch it i ended up the next morning because i listened to a lot of npr i heard a, a compilation that probably came up with 40 minutes of the debate but when you think about the rest of it because i i did go back and watch a i uh, excuse me, a uh what's the word? condensed, yeah, condensed version on youtube where well, there's where well, there's so much three people talking at the same time, there's not a lot you can understand that not and it ends up not being particularly profitable for anybody if everyone tries to talk at the same time. You know that actually reminds me of something i th- I think my family does this to me on purpose sometimes just to mess with me because they think it's funny. I get I can't be in a room comfortably where a bunch of people are talking at the same time. I struggle with it. Uh, in in big social settings where everyone, I like I know everyone is sort of supposed to be talking at the same time. There's supposed to be 50 different conversations happening. I can more focus. But like in a setting of my family, you know, like my my siblings, their spouses, my parents, like there's, there's, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 of us or whatever it is. And I can, I, I struggle. I struggle focusing. All right. And so and I get, not to struggle, often get frustrated if I, I walk in on a Sunday after church and four or five different people will ask me a question in succession. As if the person one who asked a question, excuse me, person two didn't even hear person one ask and person three didn't hear one or two, person four didn't hear one, two, or three. And so now I have like four or five things people are asking of me at the same time. And I'm just like, all right, everyone stop. Person one, what did you want? Okay, person two, what did you want? Person three, I can't handle it. I can't, I can't find any logic or rationality to everyone talking at the same time. And that debate had a whole lot of everybody talking at the same time. And so I don't know how profitable it could possibly be. Here's a couple things I wanted to get to from the debate. Number one, the behavior of everyone was repulsive. Chris Wallace, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, the behavior is immature, pathetic, unintellectual, stupid. It was horrific behavior by everybody. And I actually like Chris Wallace a lot. I think he's one of the more talented people in journalism. I think he's the most talented guy on on Fox News. I thought he could hold it together better. He said after the debate he was disappointed and surprised at how quickly it went off the rails. Uh, But let's call bad behavior bad behavior. Let's do that with clarity. That's one of the important things I want to do on the show. And general ignorant belligerence back and forth, that kind of childish back and forth, unhelpful in every way. It did not serve the American people. And nothing good comes of that kind of brutish behavior in every direction. Also, though, I think I could be wrong. And if you think I'm wrong, find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey True You'll find me there. You can send the email, send the show an email at coreytruaxshow at gmail.com, show at gmail.com. You can tell me if you think I'm wrong. I think the president came out that way as a strategy. I think he meant to do it at the beginning. Because we all thought Joe Biden couldn't hold it together. He's he's had a temper, this campaign. And as men age, they're worse and worse at holding in their temper. They're that holding the temperament together. You remember Joe Biden got challenged by some Bernie supporter and I think in Iowa and he challenged him to a push-up contest. And uh, there's there's been some other there's been some other things where Joe Biden if he gets flustered, will say a stupid thing, go off the rails a little bit. I think that was the point. I think Trump coming out the way he did, bull in a china shop, just unwilling to stop talking. Just If Chris Wallace is talking, I'm going to argue with Chris Wallace. Uh, Even if the—this is a a skill he doesn't have. Chris Wallace was asking questions with— Premises that were either false or at least needed to be given some nuance, but people with any rhetorical skill and intellect can go back and correct it. They they take the question and they can say, "Oh, Chris Wallace, I deny the premise of your question. Let let me let me reframe that." Um, or there's millions of Americans who just heard that question and and can and know that you frame that in a particular way for your agenda. You can say stuff like that. But if Wallace was asking a question with a poor premise, Trump just jumped right in. Like Wallace had, an, had another 30 seconds of question he wanted to get in, and Trump just jumps right in, starts talking over him, and they start arguing. Biden jumps in there. And it's, it was chaotic atmosphere that didn't help anybody. But again, I think it was on purpose. But Trump's not great as an instrument of focusing. So, if he wanted to fluster Biden, he should have done that with Biden, but he did it with Chris Wallace, and then Biden did the same thing. It was he was jumping jumping in when he shouldn't do that as well. So, I think he thought I think the president thought he could fluster Biden. and I'll tell you, if I would have been watching live, I would have expected that too. I would have expected when Trump came out like that. I know if I would have been watching, I would have said Biden's gonna lose it like he's gonna he's going to go off the rails here with some kind of some kind of flaring of his temper, but he didn't do it. And what what Trump doesn't have the ability to do is be mentally and intellectually flexible when you realize, oh, so like he's not going to, like he's not going to fly off the handle and he's he's not going to say anything particularly stupid. I guess I should just kind of chill, start just making my points now. But Trump went at it for a full, apparently the full 90 minutes. It just kept being that way. So, it is a repulsive behavior on all sides, all three sides, and I also thought it was a losing strategy, especially after the first 20 minutes of it, because if it didn't work, it didn't work, and I need to move on to something else. Uh, because of, It's a losing strategy because of this. I think there is some large chunk of the American people who are going to show up to vote that maybe don't know who they're going to vote for, and... The thing they want is the chaos to end. Uh, I'm going to talk about two groups. Elections are primarily made of getting your base to vote. That's the American elections since basically 2004. That's how you win. Is, it's not that you convince the middle. You just convince your side to show up. Because if you have 120 million voters, but there could be 180 million to 200 million who are eligible... Well, what you do is get all your voters to show up. Don't let people stay home. For example, with with me, how do Republicans win elections? Well, they get people like me to show up, and I'm not inclined to show up to to vote for them right now. And so that's that would be their strategy. Like right now, Lindsey Graham is in a little bit of a fight in South Carolina with uh, the Harrison guy, and Graham has way more voters available to him in the state. He's not going to lose. Uh, the middle, like, he just needs to make sure enough people show up. So his job is to convince me to show up. Not to convince Harrison voters, it's just to get me to show up, right? So that's how most elections work. For that group, for Trump, he has some group of voters out there that he just needs them to show up, so don't frustrate them. You want to fire them up, you want to give them a reason to vote for you, and the way you do that is you make the pitch on the transaction. You get them on stage and say... Here is what I did do. Here's the things that I provided to you. Even if Trump doesn't believe in any of those things, and he doesn't, but I provided these things. We made a deal. I, I, I told you if you'd vote for me in 2016, I would provide these things. These judges, this tax system, uh, this foreign policy uh, posture. These are the things you're going to get for me. I did those things. Here's some more things I want to give you. So let's make a deal. Let's make a trade. That's the pitch. And maybe the pitch f- for that group is also. But you need to do, you do need to look over there at Joe Biden and the people behind him because they're dangerous. Like that. That's maybe the pitch. But instead, it was just a brawl. Th- that point didn't get to get made articulately. It did sound like he was trying to do some of that, but not. Not effectively, because it gets lost in all of the noise they were making at each other. So there's that one group is getting your base to show up. But there is, apparently, according to polls, something like 5-6% of the American people say they're going to vote, and five weeks out, four weeks out from the election, they don't know who they're going to vote for. My theory on that group is 2020 has blown their minds. It's blown all of our minds. What all of us want is some kind of normalcy. And so when you're looking at the debate stage, what you want to see is which one of you is less crazy? Which one of you is going to bring less chaos? And Donald Trump did not make that case for himself. And it, it appears he's trailing. Like, if the election were right now, he would lose. That would have, that also would have been true in early October of 2016. But the election isn't in early October. It The election's in early November. He has every chance to win this thing. But the thing you're going to need to do, if he wants to win the thing, is show that he's not a chaos causer. And on that debate stage, he was a chaos causer. Not just him, but he did show that's that's part of his character. Final thing on this, how do we make debates better? Well, I have some ideas. One, the interacting with one another should be limited to some portion of the debate and it maybe should be the end let's say we do 90 minute debates then the last thir- the last 30 minutes they should be allowed to interact with each other but that's all so the the first hour should be topics and policy where they're given time to give their point the other person cannot be talking while the other person is talking but it's still a it can be an Oxford-style debate. Oxford-style debates are the ones that I participated in in college and some other settings where someone is given a time period in Oxford-style, it's eight minutes, where you get up and speak for eight minutes on your topic and you prove your point. You go ahead and maybe start criticizing the other person's point. And then for eight minutes, someone gets to get up and respond. And then you you get shorter periods of time, usually two minutes, to just respond to each other. But you're never, ever talking at the same time. It is the thing that would serve the American people best. So that if Joe Biden gets up, makes some point, uh, some argument for socialized medicine, and he makes a a argument about cost, and then he makes an argument about uh, effectiveness, he makes an argument about morality, instead of just diving in there every time he says a word and trying to get in, instead, all right, write that one down. He made an argument about cost. He made an argument about effectiveness. He made an argument about morality. All right. My turn? Right, here I go. So here's what I think about cost and why I think he's lying and why, why that is a false premise to his point. And you go back and forth like adults where you don't talk at the same time and uh, the American people are benefited that way. The other, and then maybe in that last 30 minutes, if you wanted, let them interact with each other. So the first hour, the candidates interact with the moderator and they interact with the camera. They're looking at the American people. And they can be responding to each other, but it's in that style. They're responding in a very orderly fashion. The other way to make debates better is the same way that I've wanted to make the State of the Union better. I think, for example, the State of the Union should have videos and PowerPoints and, like, actually be a report. What is the State of the Union? I want to see bar graphs and pie charts where we put stuff up on screens. I don't know if you guys know, it's 2020. We got all kinds of cool digital abilities, where we allow the president, demand of the president, whoever it is, get up and tell the story. Here's, here's where we were in fiscal year 2012, and here's where we are now in 2016, and actually tell the story using visual information. That would be helpful. Uh, also, at debates. like let, let, Why not do that? Why not say to both campaigns, you get 10 minutes. However you want to make your point on health care in 10 minutes, do it. And the other person's going to get up and make their pitch. And they can, and then maybe we'll give you each five minutes to respond to the other person's pitch. But let's do that. Let's bring them in to the 21st century and communicate how we communicate. We communicate digitally and visually now. Uh, I think that would help. You know, I think it would help us make debates better. Because even in, uh, even before this, before these two personalities who made that debate so cantankerous and chaotic and horrific. Well, I should say three personalities because Chris Wallace was a big part of the problem. You go back to 2012 and it was a top five moment of political anger for me. I'm not particularly angry anymore. I don't get all that angry, but Candy Crowley was moderating a debate between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney made a statement about something happening, I believe it was in Syria, and Donald Trump said, no, that's wrong, and Candy Crowley jumped in when they were trying to interact with each other, and she sided with Barack Obama and said, no, Barack Obama's right on this. And minutes after the debate's over, uh, we had news— I was actually somewhat proud of the news media. They come out and say, nope, that actually was wrong. Mitt Mitt Romney was right. Barack Obama was wrong about that fact. And so then you even mitigate that. You mitigate those things if you'll get some control over the environment instead of what we have right now, because— it's, it's chaos. It, was, it wasn't particularly all that much better with Romney and Obama. It was better, but not a ton better than what we saw up on that stage. When we come back, I have some COVID thoughts, because that's another thing happening in the news. And then we have been teaching lately on the show. I have something I want to teach you about the American, American founding principles and philosophy and how it affects us today. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of The Cory Act Show. shucks, I made a mistake that I need to correct here just uh, in a moment. First, find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'm Cory Truax, so I'm really easy to find. My name is absurdly weird and unique. You'll find me there and follow along, uh, and then you can write the show at CoryTruaxShow at gmail.com, show at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us on His Radio Talk and wherever you find fine podcasts. I forgot the whole biggest part of that debate was supposed to be the president doesn't condemn white supremacy thing. And so, uh, again, I didn't watch it live, but I, I have the audio here I'm going to play for you. And I want I to talk about it because it was such a flashpoint. I have no interest in ever, ever defending the President of the United States. But I have a lot of interest in just making sure we all work within the same facts. And so I'm going to both enliven and upset absolutely everybody right now because I'm going to, I'm going to clarify what happened in the debate, but then I'm also going to gives some points about how the president has behaved about this in the past, uh, because while well, he's not, he didn't do what he's being accused of, he's had some troubles that are inexcusable. So, really quick, the accusation against the president of the United States is that during the debate, he wouldn't condemn white supremacist groups. I'm going to play for you the audio of that exchange with Chris Wallace, the lead-up to it and the actual exchange, and... I think my take on what happened here is actually going to be really clear. Uh, one of uh, here, here's what to listen. Here is what you need to listen for. Remember that this debate had been going on for a little bit, and all Trump did all night was talk. He couldn't stop talking. When anyone else was talking, he was talking too. You know what's actually quite hard to do when you're talking? Listening. It's hard to hear what someone else says when you're constantly talking. And so Chris Wallace is trying to ask a question but Trump is talking while he's talking. And in this case, he says the words sure. He says the word sure twice. But it's hard to hear because he apparently doesn't know how a conversation works after being alive for 74 years. You let Chris Wallace talk, finish his question, and then you give that sure and you get all kinds of credit. You do you get what you actually wanted. But he doesn't know what he's doing up on this stage. He doesn't know how to have a conversation. So... Here's that exchange. Listen to the President of the United States say the word, sure, twice.
1: But they don't want to accept the National Guard.
2: You have repeatedly we... criticized the the Vice President for not specifically calling out Antifa and other left-wing right. extremist groups.
0: So even right there. That's right. That's right. Hey man, Wallace is talking. You've got to stop talking while he's talking. You'll benefit if you will.
2: But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups sure. and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in...
0: He said it twice there, sure. And then he just said it again, sure. Or will you be willing to uh, denounce white supremacists? Sure. And then Wallace keeps going with the question, and it... Sure, Trump says it again. So he has already answered, but here's the issue. Chris Wallace might not have heard it. The American people might not have heard it. And so Trump thinks... Th- I think, he thinks, the exchange is over. I have been asked to condemn white supremacy and uh, what other, whatever groups Wallace was talking about there, I said sure twice. Therefore, I've done it. And, so, and to be clear, let's, let's give him some credit because, again, I'm about to hit him pretty hard on the other end of this. He said sure twice. He was asked to condemn it. He did it with clarity. But because this is a chaotic conversation, it did not go well from there
2: in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, but we'll do it?
0: And so I'm sure I'm willing to do that. This is now the third time he said, sure, I'm willing. Where the first, the first two times it was just sure. So that's, it's affirmative. Yes. But he, he has a point he wants to now make. And, st- and that's what I think is the, the key here is I already answered. Okay. I answered your question. And now I'm moving on to my counterpoint, my counterpoint that I was taught to say is that it's the left, they're the ones that are causing all the violence, and so I'm now moving on to the counterpoint. You get Joe Biden there then adding to this and recognize two things. Donald Trump's personality is one where a couple things are true. The things that are good are the best things ever. The things that are bad, they're the worst things ever. Nothing has ever been moderately good or bad to Donald Trump. All things are all the way good and all the way bad. And also, he's never been wrong ever ever so whatever he said it has to be true and so he because because of that you get guys like chris wallace and joe biden trying to goad him like they're all children say it say it man why don't you say it he i'm telling you you could you could get joe biden and chris wallace trying to say to this man say that donald trump is the whatever a good thing he's the greatest president ever and if they're the two saying say it say it man say it man He's going to say no. I'm not saying anything you tell me to say because that's the kind of personality he is. Let's continue on with this exchange where he's being challenged to say it. Say it, man.
1: I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what are you? What are you? you want- look, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Uh, say it.
0: And so again, he already did. He said sure, sure, and that's why he's now confused. He's confused because well, I, I did, I. I did condemn them. What are we now talking about?
1: Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them?
0: And that, really, if you think about that debate, that silence right there. Yeah, do it. And before Trump says, you want to call them, that two and a half seconds of silence was the only two and a half seconds of silence all night. Because I think he actually was confused. What what did I not do? Okay, so what are we going to call them?
1: What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. Would you right you like me to
0: condemn? White supremacists and white supremacists. White and white supremacists. Okay, right now, Joe Biden is saying stuff. Chris Wallace is saying stuff. This, what, this is what happens when three historic, historic in, in the sense that they're all very old, so all probably hard of hearing, are all in a room screaming at the same time that you're going to get these situations.
1: Stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right-wing problem. His this own. Is-
0: okay, we'll stop there. He did get flack, um, and I think maybe deservedly so, for the stand-by part. I, I think that that's just a mistake. I mean, that's, he, and he should—I ne- don't think he ever did clarify it because, again, he's never, he's never been wrong, right? So the idea that he would come out and clarify, oh, I didn't mean to say that. He, he doesn't have that in him to do. But he should have, yeah. He should have come out and said, yeah, I didn't mean stand by for action. I meant stand back and stand down. But he doesn't have the, he definitely doesn't have the personality to do it. And he doesn't have the, the morality to do it. It's not part of his character. Now, I do want to make clear though, Donald Trump was asked during the 2016 campaign in the Republican primary to, uh, dur- during the Louisiana primary in particular, to condemn David Duke of the KKK. And his response was, I don't know who David Duke is. We all know who David Duke is. Second, if you don't, if you didn't know, you obviously shouldn't be president of the United States. You don't know enough things. And there was evidence of him uh, t- uh, in the book that he supposedly wrote in 2001. He talks about David Duke. So yeah, you do. And he w- he just played the game. He played the game around the racist stuff. Like he wouldn't oh. condemn David Duke. He played that stupid game. Um, what else, he also after Charlottesville, the, he got hit harder than he deserved because there was some confusion there around uh, what he said. But yeah, uh, he, I hit him hard back then too. He, he did not behave properly after Charlottesville in a providing the clarity the country needed about all the various groups that were there and the culpability thereof. All right, so that was supposed to be the big part of the debate. That's my take on it. Let's move on because I don't want to talk about it anymore. It's not, it's not any fun. I want to give you some history here. We've been doing that lately, right? Last week with Supreme Court history um, on... Uh, on weaponizing the court, recognizing the world in which the United States was birthed, that it was not birthed into no context. I actually had this discussion with somebody this week. It helped that I had just talked about this monologue, that the the world into which the United States was birthed was a world where Portugal, Spain, Britain, and France were your primary Western powers. Every single one of them were slave-operating countries, so the United States has birthed into a world that literally n- only knows slavery and then developed with the rest of the world to end slavery over time. So it, it's one of our, one of the issues is we think America was uniquely evil in this, and it wasn't. It just burst into a world where all the powers were doing a thing, and they continued doing the thing, and then finally we ended it after the Civil, after the civil War. Uh, so it's good to know our, our history. Here's one I want to give you uh, to conti- as we continue to develop and understand our politics. I'm a huge fan of Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was a pamphleteer in the American Revolution. He's really of the the founding era, the people who had real significance. He's the only one that I actually think was a true atheist. We had some deists, but Paine was a guy who was a was a real deal atheist. I think he was the only one. It's very early in that philosophy. Atheism was not really an option for for most of human history uh, in terms of thought. He was was one. I'm I'm essentially positive of that. But he was a lover of freedom. Coming out of the Enlightenment, Thomas Paine's freedoms were... It was an unlimited thing. It was... Well... Let's overthrow the British, or the royals, and the royals in France, the royals in Portugal, the royals in Spain. There should be no kings and queens. Let's overthrow that control. Also, the Catholic Church and the the churches that have any kind of, of system and structure that they would rule over people, let's tear that down. Essentially, every structure that rules over others, let's end those things. And then there was a guy named Edmund Burke. I am quite Burkean. Edmund Burke is a a philosopher that I identify with a lot. And the way way you'll learn it if you take high-level college political philosophy classes, they will say that Thomas Paine is the father of American liberalism and Edmund Burke is the father of American conservatism. And here, here I am saying, I love these guys. A huge fan of both. And for a long time in American history, this was true. We've thought about Thomas Paine as being the father of liberalism and Burke being the father of republicanism or, or, excuse me, conservatism. Ronald Reagan actually talked about this on a few episodes of his radio show back in the day when Ronald Reagan had a radio show In the problems with Thomas Paine. But this is what it used to mean to be right and left. Paine was... all was about making change abrupt and quickly. Let's break stuff and get a new system. Edmund Burke's philosophy was, well, Thomas, Mr. Payne, I, I know what you want. What you want is good. And we'll get there. It's a good thing to get there. And we're going to move slowly over time, constantly and optimistically with hope, moving towards our goal, but we're not going to do it in revolu- in a revolutionary sense because... It will hurt people. It, uh, upending the system isn't isn't a isn't a good thing, and it, and it's because they they both they came from a different worldview around the statehood of man, what what mankind is, humankind. Edmund Burke wrote that humankind. He, by the way, he's correct in this. Humankind, if left to its own devices, will have brutish, horrific lives that are short. Because mankind is desperately wicked, as the catechism would say. And because mankind is desperately wicked, without structures and organization, we'll just hurt each other. That's what we're going to do. Thomas Paine says that's actually not true. That humankind, by its nature, can cooperate and not have to have any rules. That maybe smaller groups of people, localities, have loose agreements of the rules. But Thomas Paine thought, you didn't need rules. And we, we will all work together for our good. Um, of course, I am Burkean in that way. So Burke wanted slow progression because he didn't want to cause chaos. Thomas Paine wanted absolute revolution and for there to ultimately be no rules. Now, if we do take the Thomas Paine vision, it's the left has gone beyond it. I, I wish that actually could be our. I wish that could be our uh, philosophy. I wish we were arguing between Burkeanism and Paineism in American culture. Unfortunately, we have moved past Burke and Paine to a new leftism. And with my last minute and a half here, my point I wanted to make was the the more the clear more damaging force in American political life is the modern leftist. It's not I, mean, I look at this election. I, I don't think Joe Biden is one of those, but he empowers those. He's, an, he's a person who would empower those ideas that, for example, well uh, I'll just go, I'll go to the economy. You know, it's it's my most important issue in that the economy is people. It's not just money. money is a byproduct of a healthy economy. but economy is actually is actually just humans. It's human beings it's mom and dads trying to provide for their families, it's single people trying to build their lives. And so the, the ideas of, of the left uh, cause economic stagnation. The ideas of redistribution cause economic stagnation. So you don't destroy your economy. You just move it slowly, and, and you don't achieve what you could have otherwise achieved for human flourishing. It, it, we can go beyond that to things like uh, what identity politics does to tear down our cultural cohesion, what, uh, they, would, what they seem to think about religious people and just wanted to shut us all the way down. We have a new left. It's not a Thomas Paine left anymore. And so there, we have a we have an issue where there is a modern American political system that actually hurts people. It's quite damaging. And I think it's important for a lot of us to recognize that even if we have Thomas Paine level liberalism, there's a liberalism that has come up that the even the Paine people need to respond to. I had a lot more I wanted to do on this, but I ran out of time and I can't even do bonus stuff because I have other things I have to do. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love. It's probably not surprising to you that I did not stay up at all to watch the Trump-Biden debate, like not a single second of it because I didn't care. And usually debates don't matter. They don't change anything that's typically the case uh, and so I, I didn't stay up to watch it I ended up the next morning because I listened to a lot of NPR I heard a, a compilation that probably came up with 40 minutes of the debate but when you think about the rest of it because I, I did go back and watch a, a, a excuse me a uh, what's the word condensed yeah condensed version on YouTube where well, well, there's so much three people talking at the same time. There's not a lot you can understand that not and it ends up not being particularly profitable for anybody if everyone tries to talk at the same time. You know that actually reminds me of something i th- I think my family does this to me on purpose sometimes just to mess with me because they think it's funny. I get I can't be in a room comfortably where a bunch of people are talking at the same time. I struggle with it uh, in in big social settings where everyone i like I know everyone is sort of supposed to be talking at the same time. There's supposed to be 50 different conversations happening. I can more focus. But, like, in a setting of my family, you know, like my, my siblings, their spouses, my parents, like there's, there's I don't know, 13, 14, 15 of us, whatever it is. And I can – I struggle. I struggle focusing, all right? And so – and I get – not to struggle. I'll get frustrated if I, I walk in on a Sunday after church And four or five different people will ask me a question in succession. As if the person one who asked a question, excuse me, person two didn't even hear person one ask. And person three didn't hear one or two. Person four didn't hear one, two, or three. And so now I have like four or five things people are asking of me at the same time. And I'm just like, all right, everyone stop. Person one, what did you want? Okay, person two, what did you want? Person three. I can't handle it. I can't find any logic or rationality to everyone talking at the same time. And that debate had a whole lot of everybody talking at the same time. And so I don't know how profitable it could possibly be. Here's a couple things I wanted to get to from the debate. Number one, the behavior of everyone was repulsive. Chris Wallace, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, the behavior is immature, pathetic, unintellectual stupid it was horrific behavior by everybody and I actually like Chris Wallace a lot I think he's one of the more talented people in journalism I think he's the most talented guy on on Fox News I thought he could hold it together better he said after the debate he was disappointed and surprised at how quickly it went off the rails Uh, but let's call bad behavior bad behavior let's do that with clarity that's one of the important things I want to do on the show And general ignorant belligerence back and forth, that kind of childish back and forth, unhelpful in every way, it did not serve the American people, and nothing good comes of that kind of brutish behavior in every direction. Also, though, I think I could be wrong, and if you think I'm wrong, Find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You'll find me there. You can send the email, send the show an email at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, show at gmail.com. You can tell me if you think I'm wrong. I think the president came out that way as a strategy. I think he meant to do it at the beginning because we all thought Joe Biden couldn't hold it together. He's He's had a temper, this campaign, and as men age... They're worse and worse at holding in their temper. They're that holding the temperament together. You remember Joe Biden got challenged by some Bernie supporter and I think in Iowa and he challenged him to a push-up contest. And uh, there's there's been some other there's been some other things where Joe Biden, if he gets flustered, will say a stupid thing, go off the rails a little bit. I think that was the point. I think Trump coming out the way he did, bull in a China shop, just no- unwilling to stop talking just if Chris Wallace is talking I'm going to argue with Chris Wallace uh, even if the this is a, a skill he doesn't have Chris Wallace was asking questions with premises that were either false or at least needed to be given some nuance but people with any rhetorical skill and intellect can go back and correct it they they take the question and they can say oh Chris Wallace, I deny the premise of your question. Let let me let me reframe that. Um or there's millions of Americans who just heard that question and and can, and know that you framed that in a particular way for your agenda. You can say stuff like that. But if Wallace was asking a question with a poor premise, Trump just jumped right in. Like Wallace had an, had another 30 seconds of question he wanted to get in and Trump just jumps right in starts talking over him and they start arguing. Biden jumps in there and it's it was chaotic atmosphere that didn't help anybody. But again, I think it was on purpose. But Trump's not great as an instrument of focusing. So if he wanted to fluster Biden, he should have done that with Biden, but he did it with Chris Wallace. And then Biden did the same thing. It was, he was jumping, jumping in when he shouldn't do that as well. So I think he thought, I think the president thought, he could fluster Biden. And I'll tell you, if I would have been watching live, I would have expected that too. I would have expected when Trump came out like that. I know if I would have been watching, I would have said Biden's going to lose it. Like he's going to he's going to go off the rails here with some kind of some kind of flaring of his temper. But he didn't do it. And what what Trump doesn't have the ability to do is be mentally and intellectually flexible. When you realize, oh, so like he's not going to like he's not going to fly off the handle and he's he's not going to say anything particularly stupid. I guess I should just kind of chill. Start just making my points now. But Trump went at it for a full, apparently, the full 90 minutes. It just kept being that way. So it is a repulsive behavior on all sides, all three sides. And I also thought it was a losing strategy, especially after the first 20 minutes of it. Because if it didn't work, it didn't work, and I need to move on to something else. Uh, because of It's a losing strategy because of this. I think there is some large chunk of the American people who are going to show up to vote that maybe don't know who they're going to vote for and the thing they want is the chaos to end. Uh, I'm going to talk about two groups. Elections are primarily made of getting your base to vote. That's the American elections since basically 2004. That's how you win. Is It's not that you convince the middle. You just convince your side to show up. Because if you have 120 million voters, but there could be 180 million to 200 million who are eligible, well, what you do is get all your voters to show up. Don't let people stay home. For example, with with me, how do Republicans win elections? Well, they get people like me to show up, and I'm not inclined to show up to, to vote for them right now. And so that's that would be their strategy. Like right now, Lindsey Graham is in a little bit of a fight in South Carolina with uh, the Harrison guy. And Graham has way more voters available to him in the state. He's not going to lose the middle. Like he just needs to make sure enough people show up. So his job is to convince me to show up, not to convince Harrison voters. It's just to get me to show up, right? So that's how most elections work. For that group, for Trump, he has some group of voters out there that he just needs them to show up. So don't frustrate them. You want to fire them up, you want to give them a reason to vote for you. And the way you do that is you make the pitch on the transaction. You get him on stage and say, here is what I did do. Here's the things that I provided to you, even if Trump doesn't believe in any of those things, and he doesn't, but I provided these things. We made a deal. I, I, I told you if you'd vote for me in 2016, I would provide these things, these judges, this tax system, uh, this foreign policy uh, posture. These are the things you're going to get from me. I did those things. Here's some more things I want to give you. So let's make a deal. Let's make a trade. That's the pitch. And maybe the pitch f- for that group is also. But you need to do. You do need to look over there at Joe Biden and the people behind him because they're dangerous. Like that. That's maybe the pitch. But instead, it was just a brawl. Th- that point didn't get to get made articulately. It did sound like he was trying to do some of that, but not. Not effectively, because it gets lost in all of the noise they were making at each other. So there's that one group is getting your base to show up. But there is, apparently, according to polls, something like 5 6% of the American people say they're going to vote, and five weeks out, four weeks out from the election, they don't know who they're going to vote for. My theory on that group is 2020 has blown their minds. It's blown all of our minds. What all of us want is some kind of normalcy. And so when you're looking at the debate stage, what you want to see is which one of you is less crazy which one of you is going to bring less chaos and donald trump did not make that case for himself and it it appears he's trailing like if the election were right now he would lose that would have, that also would have been true in early october of 2016 but the election isn't in early october it the election's in early november he has every chance to win this thing but the thing you're going to need to do if he wants to win the thing is Show that he's not a chaos causer. And on that debate stage, he was a chaos causer. Not just him, but he did show that's that's part of his character. Final thing on this, how do we make debates better? Well, I have some ideas. One, the interacting with one another should be limited to some portion of the debate, and it maybe should be the end let's say we do 90 minute debates then the last thir- the last 30 minutes they should be allowed to interact with each other but that's all so the the first hour should be topics and policy where they're given time to give their point the other person cannot be talking while the other person is talking but it's still a It can be an Oxford-style debate. Oxford-style debates are the ones that I participated in in college and some other settings where someone is given a time period, in Oxford-style, it's eight minutes, where you get up and speak for eight minutes on your topic and you prove your point. You go ahead and maybe start criticizing the other person's point. And then for eight minutes, someone gets to get up and respond. And then you you get shorter periods of time, usually two minutes, to just respond to each other. But you're never, ever talking at the same time. It is the thing that would serve the American people best. So that if Joe Biden gets up, makes some point, uh, some argument for socialized medicine, and he makes a a argument about cost, and then he makes an argument about uh, effectiveness, he makes an argument about morality, instead of just diving in there every time he says a word and trying to get in, instead, all right, write that one down. He made an argument about cost. He made an argument about effectiveness. He made an argument about morality. All right. My turn? Right, here I go. So here's what I think about cost and why I think he's lying and why, why that is a false premise to his point. And you go back and forth like adults where you don't talk at the same time and uh, the American people are benefited that way. The other, And then maybe in that last 30 minutes, if you wanted, let them interact with each other. So the first hour, the candidates interact with the moderator and they interact with the camera. They're looking at the American people. And they can be responding to each other, but it's in that style. They're responding in a very orderly fashion. The other way to make debates better is the same way that I've wanted to make the State of the Union better. I think, for example, the State of the Union should have videos and PowerPoints and like actually be a report. What is the State of the Union? I want to see bar graphs and pie charts where we put stuff up on screens. I don't know if you guys know, it's 2020. We got all kinds of cool digital abilities where we allow the president, demand of the president, whoever it is, get up and tell the story. Here's, here's where we were in fiscal year 2012, and here's where we are now in 2016, and actually tell the story using visual information. That would be helpful. Uh, also, at debates, like let, let, why not do that? Why not say to both campaigns, you get 10 minutes. However you want to make your point on health care in 10 minutes, do it. And the other person's going to get up and make their pitch. And they can, and then maybe we'll give you each five minutes to respond to the other person's pitch. But let's do that. Let's bring them into the 21st century and communicate how we communicate. We communicate digitally and visually now. Uh, I think that would help. You know, I think it would help us make debates better. Because even in, uh, even before this, before these two personalities who made that debate so cantankerous and chaotic and horrific. Well, I should say three personalities because Chris Wallace was a big part of the problem. You go back to 2012 and it was a top five moment of political anger for me. I'm not particularly angry anymore. I don't get all that angry, but Candy Crowley was moderating a debate between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney made a statement about something happening, I believe it was in Syria, and Donald Trump said, no, that's wrong, and Candy Crowley jumped in when they were trying to interact with each other, and she sided with Barack Obama and said, no, Barack Obama's right on this. And minutes after the debate's over, uh, we had news— I was actually somewhat proud of the news media. They come out and say, nope, that actually was wrong. Mitt Mitt Romney was right. Barack Obama was wrong about that fact. And so then you even mitigate that. You mitigate those things if you'll get some control over the environment instead of what we have right now, because— it's it's chaos. It was it wasn't particularly all that much better with Romney and Obama. It was better, but not a ton better than what we saw up on that stage. When we come back, I have some COVID thoughts because that's another thing happening in the news. And then we have been teaching lately on the show. I have something I want to teach you about the American American founding principles and philosophy and how it affects us today. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Cory True Act show. <laughs> Well, shucks, I made a mistake that I need to correct here just uh, in a moment. First, find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'm Cory Truax, so I'm really easy to find. My name is absurdly weird and unique. You'll find me there and follow along, uh, and then you can write the show at Show at gmail.com, CoryTruaxShow at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us on His Radio Talk and wherever you find fine podcasts. I forgot the whole biggest part of that debate was supposed to be the president... Doesn't condemn white supremacy thing, and so uh, again, I didn't watch it live, but I, I have the audio here. I'm going to play for you, and I want to, I want to talk about it because it was such a flashpoint. I have no interest in ever, ever defending the president of the United States, but I have a lot of interest in just making sure we all work within the same facts. And so I'm going to both enliven and upset absolutely everybody right now, because I'm going to, I'm going to clarify what happened in the debate, but then I'm also going to give some points about how the president has behaved about this in the past, uh, because while he's not, he didn't do what he's being accused of, he's had some troubles that are inexcusable. So, really quick, the accusation against the president of the United States is that during the debate, he wouldn't condemn white supremacist groups. I'm going to play for you the audio of that exchange with Chris Wallace, the lead up to it and the actual exchange, and... I think my take on what happened here is actually going to be really clear. Uh, One, here's what to listen. Here is what you need to listen for. Remember that this debate had been going on for a little bit, and all Trump did all night was talk. He couldn't stop talking. When anyone else was talking, he was talking too. You know what's actually quite hard to do when you're talking? Listening. It's hard to hear what someone else says when you're constantly talking. And so Chris Wallace is trying to ask a question. But Trump is talking while he's talking. And in this case, he says the words sure. He says the word sure twice. But it's hard to hear because he apparently doesn't know how a conversation works after being alive for 74 years. You let Chris Wallace talk, finish his question, and then you give that sure and you get all kinds of credit. You do you get what you actually wanted. But he doesn't know what he's doing up on the stage. He doesn't know how to have a conversation. So... Here's that exchange. Listen to the President of the United States say the word, sure, twice. But they don't want to accept the National Guard.
2: You have repeatedly we... criticized the the Vice President for not specifically calling out Antifa and other left-wing right. extremist groups.
0: So even right there. That's right. That's right. Hey man, Wallace is talking. You've got to stop talking while he's talking. You'll benefit if you will.
2: But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups sure. and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in...
0: He said it twice there, sure. And then he just said it again, sure. Or will you be willing to uh, denounce white supremacists? Sure. And then Wallace keeps going with the question, and it... Sure, Trump says it again. So he has already answered, but here's the issue. Chris Wallace might not have heard it. The American people might not have heard it. And so Trump thinks... Th- I think, he thinks, the exchange is over. I have been asked to condemn white supremacy and uh, what other, whatever groups Wallace was talking about there, I said sure twice. Therefore, I've done it. And, so, and to be clear, let's, let's give him some credit because, again, I'm about to hit him pretty hard on the other end of this. He said sure twice. He was asked to condemn it. He did it with clarity. But because this is a chaotic conversation, it did not go well from there.
2: In Kenosha, and as we've seen in Portland, sure, are you prepared to, to do it? We'll do it. Well, I go would ahead say,
0: and, I... And, so, and so I'm sure I'm willing to do that. This is now the third time he said, "Sure, I am willing." Where the first, the first two times it was just sure, so that's, it's affirmative yes. But he, he has a point he wants to now make, and, st- and that's what I think is the, the key here. Is I already answered? Okay, I answered your question, and now I'm moving on to my counterpoint. My counterpoint that I was taught to say is that it's the left, they're the ones that are causing all the violence, and so I'm now moving on to the counterpoint. You get Joe Biden there then adding to this and recognize two things. Donald Trump's personality is one where a couple things are true. The things that are good are the best things ever. The things that are bad, they're the worst things ever. Nothing has ever been moderately good or bad to Donald Trump. All things are all the way good and all the way bad. And also, he's never been wrong ever, ever. So whatever he said, it has to be true. And so he, because of that, you get guys like Chris Wallace and Joe Biden trying to goad him like they're all children. Say it. Say it, man. Why don't you say it? He, I'm telling you, you could, you could get Joe Biden and Chris Wallace trying to say to this man, say that Donald Trump is the whatever, a good thing. He's the greatest president ever. And if they're the two saying, say it, say it, man, say it, man, He's going to say no. I'm not saying anything you tell me to say because that's the kind of personality he is. Let's continue on with this exchange where he's being challenged to say it. Say it, man. I would
1: say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what are you? What if are you? you look, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say um, it.
0: And so again, he already did. He said sure, sure, and that's why he's now confused. He's confused because well, I, I did. I. I did condemn them. What are we now talking about?
1: Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them?
0: And that, really, if you think about that debate, that silence right there. Yeah, do it. And before Trump says, you want to call them, that two and a half seconds of silence was the only two and a half seconds of silence all night. Because I think he actually was confused. What what did I not do? Okay, so what are we going to call them?
1: What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a name.
2: White supremacists and white like White to and white supremacists. And right
0: now, Joe Biden is saying stuff. Chris Wallace is saying stuff. This, what, this is what happens when three historic, historic in, in the sense that they're all very old, so all probably hard of hearing, are all in a room screaming at the same time that you're going to get these situations.
1: Stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is
0: not a right-wing problem. This is- okay, we'll stop there. He did get flack, um, and I think maybe deservedly so, for the stand-by part. I, I, I think that that's just a mistake. I mean, that's, he, and he should, if he ne- I don't think he ever did clarify it because, again, he's never, he's never been wrong, right? So the idea that he would come out and clarify, oh, I didn't mean to say that. He, he doesn't have that in him to do. But he should have, yeah. He should have come out and said, yeah, I didn't mean stand by for action. I meant stand back and stand down. But he doesn't have the, he definitely doesn't have the personality to do it. And he doesn't have the, the morality to do it. It's not part of his character. Now, I do want to make clear though, Donald Trump was asked during the 2016 campaign in the Republican primary to, uh, d- during the Louisiana primary in particular, to condemn David Duke of the KKK. And his response was, I don't know who David Duke is. We all know who David Duke is. Second, if you don't, if you didn't know, you obviously shouldn't be president of the United States. You don't know enough things. And there was evidence of him uh, t- uh, in the book that he supposedly wrote in two thousand or 01. He talks about David Duke. So yeah, you do. And he w- he just played the game. He played the game around the racist stuff, like he wouldn't condemn David Duke. He played that stupid game. Um, what else, he also after Charlottesville, the, he got hit harder than he deserved because there was some confusion there around uh, what he said. But yeah, uh, he, I hit him hard back then too. He, he did not behave properly after Charlottesville in a providing the clarity the country needed about all the various groups that were there and the culpability thereof. All right, so that was supposed to be the big part of the debate. That's my take on it. Let's move on because I don't want to talk about it anymore. It's not, it's not any fun. I want to give you some history here. We've been doing that lately, right? Last week with Supreme Court history um, on... Uh, on weaponizing the court, recognizing the world in which the United States was birthed, that it was not birthed into no context. I actually had this discussion with somebody this week. It helped that I had just talked about this monologue, that the the world into which the United States was birthed was a world where Portugal, Spain, Britain, and France were your primary Western powers. Every single one of them were slave-operating countries, so the United States has birthed into a world that literally n- only knows slavery and then developed with the rest of the world to end slavery over time. So it, it's one of our, one of the issues is we think America was uniquely evil in this, and it wasn't. It just birthed into a world where all the powers were doing a thing, and they continued doing the thing, and then finally we ended it after the Civil, after the civil War. Uh, so it's good to know our, our history. Here's one I want to give you uh, to conti- as we continue to develop and understand— our politics. I'm a huge fan of Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was a pamphleteer in the American Revolution. He's really of the uh, the founding era, the people who had real significance. He's the only one that I actually think was a true atheist. We had some deists, but Paine was a guy who was a was a real deal atheist. I think he was the only one. And it's very early in that philosophy. Atheism was not really an option for for most of human history uh, in terms of thought. He was he was one. I'm I'm essentially positive of that, but he was a lover of freedom. Coming out of the Enlightenment, Thomas Paine's freedoms were un it was an unlimited thing. It was well let's overthrow The British, or the royals, and the royals in France, the royals in Portugal, the royals in Spain. There should be no kings and queens. Let's overthrow that control. Also, the Catholic Church and the the churches that have any kind of, of system and structure that they would rule over people, let's tear that down. Essentially, every structure that rules over others, let's end those things. And then there was a guy named Edmund Burke. I am quite Burkean. Edmund Burke is a, a, a philosopher that I identify with a lot. And the way, you, the way you'll learn it if you take high level college political philosophy classes, they will say that Thomas Paine is the father of American liberalism and Edmund Burke is the father of American conservatism. And here, here I am saying, I love these guys, a huge fan of both. And for a long time in American history, this was true. We've thought about Thomas Paine as being the father of liberalism and Burke being the father of republicanism or, or, excuse me, conservatism. Ronald Reagan actually talked about this on a few episodes of his radio show back in the day when Ronald Reagan had a, a radio show In the problems with Thomas Paine. But this is what it used to mean to be right and left. Paine was... all was about making change abrupt and quickly. Let's break stuff and get a new system. Edmund Burke's philosophy was, well, Thomas, Mr. Payne, I, I know what you want. What you want is good. And we'll get there. It's a good thing to get there. And we're going to move slowly over time, constantly and optimistically with hope, moving towards our goal, but we're not going to do it in revolu- in a revolutionary sense because... It will hurt people. It, uh, upending the system isn't isn't a, isn't a good thing, and it, and it's because they, they both they came from a different worldview around the statehood of man, what what mankind is, humankind. Edmund Burke wrote that humankind. He, by the way, he's correct in this. Humankind, if left to its own devices, will have brutish, horrific lives that are short. Because mankind is desperately wicked, as the catechism would say. And because mankind is desperately wicked, without structures and organization, we'll just hurt each other. That's what we're going to do. Thomas Paine says that's actually not true. That humankind, by its nature, can cooperate and not have to have any rules. That maybe smaller groups of people, localities, have loose agreements of the rules. But Thomas Paine thought, you didn't need rules. And we, we will all work together for our good. Um, of course, I am Burkean in that way. So Burke wanted slow progression because he didn't want to cause chaos. Thomas Paine wanted absolute revolution and for there to ultimately be no rules. Now, if we do take the Thomas Paine vision, it's the left has gone beyond it. I, I wish that actually could be our. I wish that could be our uh, philosophy. I wish we were arguing between burkeanism and painism in American culture. Unfortunately, we have moved past Burke and Paine to a new leftism. And with my last minute and a half here, my point I wanted to make was the the more the clear more damaging force in American political life is the modern leftist. It's not, I, mean, I look at this election, I don't think Joe Biden is one of those, but he empowers those. He's a, he's a person who would empower those ideas that, for example, uh, I'll just go, I'll go to the economy. You know, it's, it's my most important issue in that the economy is people. It's not just money. Money is a byproduct of a healthy economy. But economy is actually, is actually just humans. It's human beings. It's mom and dad's trying to provide for their families. It's single people trying to build their lives. And so the, the ideas of, of the left uh, cause economic stagnation. The ideas of redistribution cause economic stagnation. So you don't destroy your economy. You just move it slowly, and, and you don't achieve what you could have otherwise achieved for human flourishing. It, it, we can go beyond that to things like uh, what identity politics does to tear down our cultural cohesion. What, uh, they, would, what they seem to think about religious people and just wanted to shut us all the way down... We have a new left. It's not a Thomas Paine left anymore. And so there, we have a we have an issue where there is a modern American political system that actually hurts people. It's quite damaging. And I think it's important for a lot of us to recognize that. Even if we have Thomas Paine-level liberalism, there's a liberalism that has come up that the, even the Paine people need to respond to. I had a lot more I wanted to do on this, but I have run out of time, and I can't even do bonus stuff because I have other things I have to do. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.